Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 641 with Richard Boyatzis. Richard brings some profound wisdom and research into what does it take to really open up to change yourself and others, and how could we facilitate that all the more effectively with coaching? So great stuff. You'll learn, one, why goals don't motivate us to change and what does. Two, the biological key that opens people up to change. And three, four principles for making change stick. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, or the links to items we've referenced, they're over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP641. That's awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP641. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out some nifty stuff, such as our Gold Nugget email list. The Gold Nugget provides summary wisdom and insight from Richard in an email right to your inbox. You can read in two or three-ish minutes when the episode goes live, as well as access to the whole vault of all these summary write-ups. Handy stuff, gold nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Richard's story. Richard Boyatzis is a distinguished university professor at Case Western Reserve University, a professor in the departments of organizational behavior, psychology, and cognitive science, and the H.R. Horvitz Professor of Family Business. He's got his bachelor's in aeronautics and astronautics from MIT, a master's and doctorate in social psychology from Harvard, and using his intentional change theory, he studies sustained desire change of individuals, teams, organizations, and communities and countries. He's been doing it since 1967. He's authored more than 200 articles and nine books on leadership competencies, emotional intelligence, competency development, coaching, neuroscience, and management education, including the international bestseller Primal Leadership with Daniel Goleman and Annie McKee, and the recent Healthy People Change with Melvin Smith and Ellen Van Oosten. His Coursera MOOCs, including Inspiring Leadership Through Emotional Intelligence, have over a million enrolled people from 215 countries. He's a fellow of the Association of Psychological Science, the Society of Industrial and Organizational Psychology, and the American Psychological Association. Big thanks to Richard for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Richard. Richard, thanks for joining us on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you. Well, I'm so excited to hear what you've got to say. And you've got your, your doctorate in social psychology from Harvard. And I, in my personal yep. opinion, social psychology experiments are among the most fascinating of them all. Could you share with us a, a particularly intriguing experiment that either you've run or, or just run across? Well, it's worth it to know that I'm basically a scientist. Because right. my first career was designing control systems and interplanetary vehicles. 
it was after I did that for six and a half months, I found it boring. So I, <laughs> I left and turned to psychology. <laughs> but I, I don't mostly do experiments. Mostly what I do is help people change. So I started out when I first turned to the light side of the force of uh, psychology. I started working on how graduate students at MIT helped each other or didn't. And then I expanded that to working with alcoholics and drug addicts and training therapists and then shifted back to something a little less depressing, which was uh, how to help people develop as leaders and managers. And, and since 87, most of my work is really focused on how do you help 25 to 75-year-olds grow and develop. Mm-hmm. Well, we love doing just that here. And, and most of us are in that age zone. So tell right. us, <laughs> what's perhaps the most surprising discovery you've made along the way about uh, how, how people change and can help others change? Well, for the longest time, I thought that the real motivator for people was the discrepancy between where they wanted to be and where they were. And in my theory, it's called the real ideal self. And other people had started to write about it years afterwards. But what I discovered in the last 20 years, and part of that came about through a series of fMRI studies I did, neuroimaging studies, and some hormonal studies, is that the real motivator for learning and change is not the discrepancy. It's your dream. That, in fact, when you dream, not goals, but when you dream, when you think about what's my deep purpose? What do I would love my life to be in 15 years? And you start to let yourself go. You actually activate neural circuits that allow you to be open to new ideas and other people. When you focus on goals at the beginning of a process like this, you actually close down that circuitry, that network, because you activate a different network, an analytic network that suppresses your openness to new ideas and other people. Wow. So I would say the power of a person's dream. And, you know, a lot of people have talked about that. And hell, Tony Robbins gets 20 million a day for talking about it. But what happened to me was, you know, as a scientist, I'm skeptical about all this stuff. And I'm plotting away doing all my longitudinal research for, you know, the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And then all of a sudden, I started to look at the psychophysiological interactions. We did some fMRI studies and found out that when you talk to people about their dreams, they light up, like I said, this network that allows you to be open. And when you talk to them about solving problems, they close that down. Hmm. And that's counterintuitive because a lot of people think, well, oh, give me another goal. Give me another metric. Add another thing to my dashboard. And it turns out all of that stuff works the opposite way. It doesn't motivate people to be open to change or adapt or innovate. And now we have dozens and dozens of, of actual behavioral studies in organizations, public sector, private sector, nonprofit, showing that when you engage this, what I call a positive emotional attractor, it's a certain neural network, certain hormonal system, uh, and feeling positive about things, you actually increase leadership effectiveness, professional effectiveness, engineering effectiveness innovation, engagement, and organizational citizenship, which is a variable that measures how much you do beyond your job. Whew. Richard, this is exciting. And that's a big idea. It's huge. Wow. That changes everything. It's huge. Look, look how many people listening right now are kind of doing their job, 
but kind of looking for the next thing, which means that they're not doing their job well. <laughs> so what happens is we have engagement numbers pre-COVID. It said 76% of the people in the United States with full-time jobs pre-COVID were not engaged in their work. 83% in Europe, 81% in Japan. That is a worldwide motivational crisis. That means four out of five people aren't bringing their stuff to work. And they're not using their discretionary time to create new ways to serve their customers or create new ideas. I ran into this decades ago when I'd be counts coaching as a part of leadership programs, the CFO of a Fortune 500 company, and I'd discover that his eyes would light up when he talked about the body shop that he and a friend started that now has five outlets. I mean, he was the CFO of a Fortune 500 <laughs> company. You'd think he'd be somewhat excited about that. And it turns out he wasn't. Oh, boy. So the question that we all face is not just as a leader, as a manager, as a parent, as a teacher, how do I motivate other people to be interested in learning and change? But how do I keep myself motivated? Because we know from the neuroscience studies about this, that our brains are hardwired to pick up on the emotions of others. Literally, this is not kind of betazoid empaths. This is real human adult brains. We actually pick up the emotions of others around us in eight to 40 thousandths of a second, milliseconds, deeply unconscious. And even if people are masking what they are feeling, we're picking up the real feelings. So if you're kind of a bit bored or a bit humdrum, you know, you might not say it at work because you got to show the bravado of performance and this and that. But if you're really feeling that inside, guess what? Everybody around you is getting infected with this thing. Boy, if you aren't inspired about your life and work, there's no way you're going to be inspiring other people. And that's what we have to do. All right. Oh, thank you. Well, so let's, let's really drill into this distinction between sure. a dream and a goal. Like right. lay it out for us. Like what are the, the fundamental differences between a dream and a goal? Sure. Here's the question. The single question that we ask that we now know, if we spend 20 or 30 minutes talking about it, you're lighting up. If your life were fantastic 10 to 15 years from now, if it was absolutely perfect, what would it be like? So first we say life, not just work, because work's a subset of life. Secondly, we go out 10 to 15 years because we don't want to do three years because people forecast. And when they forecast, they put blinders on and say, well, I can't get there. And we have to emphasize absolutely perfect. So you actually want people to break with reality. Mm -hmm. And very often, I mean, some people have trouble, especially if they come from economies or political entities or nations that are under a lot of repression, they can't dream. So the dilemma is, how do we break out of that? And that's where what we need to do is to not let ourselves have these blinders on that other people have imposed. It does not mean that it automatically can come true, but it may be the pursuit of it that's the most important. Because the one thing we know neurologically and psychologically is that when you dream, you actually feel hopeful about the future. It's one of the reasons why I tell people, do not watch the news on TV today, these days. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to get news, read something. It's less emotionally affective. The news is bound to make you either angry or throw you on an emotional roller coaster. So the key thing ends up, how do you feel hope? How do you feel mm -hmm. hopeful about the future? 
And part of that is you start to dream. And for many people, once you start to dream, things open up. And it, it literally, it seems like ideas come to people and they start to notice things. Goals are very useful when you want to focus and you want to get something very specific done. I published a, a research study in 1970 showing that if you set specific goals, you'll achieve your behavior changes two-thirds, uh, three times more likely than if you don't. The problem is today, if we set a goal, we actually stimulate a part of our psyche that says we should be working toward it. I mean, why do you think most people can't lose weight? Most people can't lose weight because it's a negatively framed goal. And almost everybody who seeks to lose weight will lose it and then they'll gain it back. Treatment adherence, that's doing what your physician or nurse says you should do after surgery or a diagnosis. It's about 50% in most cases. People do about half of what they're supposed to do. And if, if it's really serious, like coronary bypass surgery, it's about 20%. They do it less when it's more serious. Huh. Okay. Yes. And the same thing we could say, most of us, with regard to what we eat or what we drink. So one of the things that you start to realize is that there's something insidious about the way we get our messages about how we should change. Not how we want to change, but how we should change. And in fact, that's what a lot of my research has been focusing on, and mine and others. You know, other professors, Melvin Smith and Ellen Van Osten, who co-authored a recent book with me uh, that Harvard Business Review Press published, and a lot of other academic articles and things. So it's not just me alone, but one of the things that's very clear is most of the time when we want to help someone, we try to fix them. Mm -hmm. Give them a tip. Okay, here's what you should do. You want to stick to it. You want to get more drive. Do you want to make you know, your podcast be listened to by millions, not just a few hundred thousand? Here's what you should do. And as soon as people do that, even if it's well-intended, even if it might be a good idea, you feel like you're being bullied and you close down. And that's the thing that goals do. Now, there is a time in the change process when you want to focus and you want to close down. You want to eliminate extraneous noise because you want to keep your eyes really focused. And quite literally, uh, there was one study done in England where they used endocrines that are a part of stress, like epinephrine, and they're endocrines that are a part of renewal, which is where the body rebuilds itself, uh, like oxytocin, and they sprayed either epinephrine or oxytocin in a person's nostrils. And what they were able to show was that peripheral vision, which for most of us is about 180 degrees. If you're not a pilot, you wouldn't know this, but if you want to measure your peripheral vision, look straight ahead at a dot on the wall and move your hands, start moving them about a hand's length away from your shoulders and keep moving them back until you just lose sight of them. Meanwhile, you're just focusing forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mine's about there, a little less than yours, Pete, but you're younger. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I'm like 175, 170 degrees. You're closer to 180 or 200. Under epinephrine spray, which is the stress, mild stress, not acute, goes down to 30 degrees. No kidding. No kidding. So what happens is when you set a goal, you focus. The benefit of setting a goal is to focus. And when you focus, you're not paying attention to all that. 
You don't know that your dog wants to go out. You don't know that your spouse or partner, you know, wants you to to uh, go to the grocery store. Well, you forget all that. But that's also what allows you to get something done. So goals are useful around the change process later on. Unfortunately, too many people today think by being specific early on or giving people negative feedback, you can get them motivated to change. And all you do is just make people feel like you're a helping bully. Okay. Well, so let's talk about the helping side of this. So so individually, got it. Dreaming activates hope, activates new possibilities, right. gets gets things moving in some really cool directions and, and, and gets engagement and juice and energy flowing. And then later on, you know, a goal will focus in our, our efforts. Whereas if we, you know, jump the gun and get a goal too early, you know, oops, you know, we're running into trouble. We feel some should, we feel some bullying and we, and we don't get Good. that motivation engagement. You got it. You should teach an MBA course. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, so then, then tell us if we're in a role where we're trying to, to help somebody, maybe a, a friend or a peer or a colleague or a direct report that we manage, yeah. what are some of the top do's and don'ts uh, using this knowledge? Okay. Yeah. Here's one that's counterintuitive. Constructive criticism is criticism. Uh huh. The receiver doesn't really necessarily differentiate your intent. You know, ask any teenager about stuff their parents are saying. Ask any older mother or father when their in-laws are giving them tips on how to dress their kids. So the challenge that we have is that when we see how somebody else could do something better, we want to help them. And in helping them, we often do it by telling them what to do. And we now have the evidence to says that, that tells us that this closes people down and it's too early. So if you see something that somebody is doing wrong, keep it to yourself. Okay. Because telling them that they're doing wrong will not be better than nothing. In fact, it's worse than nothing. <laughs> okay. Worse than nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Speak it up, right? Now, if you ask somebody how it's going and they start to critique it and they get to a point where they say, you know... This part of my interaction with these customers didn't go the way I wanted to. And you nod your head. And if they turn to you and say, can you see something that I might have done differently? Now, at that point, the person is open. Okay. So the key is actually has a lot to do with listening to others. I mean, it sounds silly. It's so simple, but it isn't simple. It's hard to listen to others. You know, we're too busy pushing our own thoughts. So you keep your mouth shut until they ask for it. Right. All right. Right. And that's, like I said, it's counterintuitive. Everybody thinks you can push people to change. You can't. Now, look, just to be careful, with children or with people who suffer from various cognitive disorders or emotional disorders, they may need more structure. You know, so you don't want to wait till a child burns themselves in a fire to try to get them to realize that they shouldn't put their hands on a fire. Okay. Um, so I'm not saying this for every situation, but as soon as we become sentient adults, now we have a built-in defensive reaction to somebody telling us what we should do. That's why performance improvement plans are a waste of time. Performance reviews might be useful, but usually they have to be done in a certain way if they're going to be useful. Okay. And so then in our daily interactions, right. if we're not, or even in the performance review or the, within our daily interactions, if we're most of the time not being asked, <laughs> you know, how, how we can improve, uh, which by the way, there's probably one tip right there is to, for professionals who want to grow, 
dream, be open and ask, um, and and you'll get the goods and be open to actually working with the goods. So there's one take implication. That's right. Well, that's two, two implications, dream and then ask. (laughs) All right. And so then if we're not the asker, but rather the influencer, right? So we're listening. What else are we doing when we're not asking and we're trying to sheer steer things in a direction? One of the things you want to do is try to move people into this zone, this physiological, psychological zone that I call the positive emotional attractor. And the question is, how do you get people into that? Because any degree of even mild stress, like your cell phone drops a call or somebody cuts you off in traffic, impairs you cognitively. The data is very clear on this. Cognitively impairs you perceptually, emotionally. So how do you get into some of these positive spaces? Well, one idea is to periodically feel hopeful. This is one of the reasons why playing around with ideas, you know, when the Powerball, like, what was it last week, hit a billion or something? Mm-hmm. It's fun to say, you know, okay, you'd get 736 million and, you know, you kiss off 300 million of that to taxes, but you're left with $400 million, which if you invest in a, you know, a diversified portfolio is going to kick off 20, 30 million a year. Now, I mean, you could buy a plane a year kind of with that if you wanted to. You could eliminate hunger in entire communities if you wanted to. So the question ends up being, being fanciful about something like that is not the devil's playground. It's actually you being open. Here's another tip or another way to do it, I should say. Hope is one of these emotion, core emotions that is very, very strong and helps us open up. Another one is compassion, gratitude. And one of the questions we often do, it's an exercise. Uh, let's do it right now with your audience. All right. What I'd like you to do in the audience is I'd like you to think of the people in your life who have helped you the most become who you are or get to where you are in your whole life. Who would you say, I wouldn't be who I am today if it wasn't for X? I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for Y? Just pause a minute, jot down a few names. Now go back to the first name you put down and remember a moment with them in which you learned something important. And just think about or write down a word or phrase that captures what they said or did in that moment. In other words, you're replaying the YouTube video of that moment. Mm -hmm. I do this in all my speeches and lectures and courses usually give people more time we're a little time constrained so i'll rush it now what i'm asking you now is how did it feel when you remembered these people and you remembered that moment i've done this exercise on all seven continents something like 50 countries and people usually say huh i felt really grateful i felt loved i felt appreciated I was really moved. I felt energized. I felt excited. I felt serene. All of these, excuse me, each of these emotions are indicators, are biomarkers of activating the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the body's only antidote to stress, mild or extreme. And that is the physiological, the hormonal thing that gets you into this more positive state. So what ends up happening is Feeling gratitude and caring for others is one of those things. So being in a loving relationship is really good for you in this way. Spending time laughing with your children or close friends is really good. 
helping people who are less fortunate is really good. Having a dog or cat, or in some places, a horse or a monkey, something you can stroke. Because when you pet them, I have two golden retrievers. When one of them comes up to me, I stop what I'm doing. I pet her for a while. She goes into a parasympathetic response because of the emotional contagion. I pick it up. I'm going into this good zone. She picks it up back. You know, we're having a moment here. Mm-hmm. But we're both allowing our bodies, our minds, and our spirits, quite literally, to rebuild themselves. So what happens is moments of hope, moments of caring and compassion, moments of mindfulness or centeredness all really help. So I know folks who are coaching others during this COVID crisis, so they're doing it on Zoom or video. And they start, because of all the stress in our lives, they start their session not talking about how are you feeling. They start by doing about five minutes of deep breathing exercises. And it's not woo-woo land. This is helping your body reset itself. It's amazing how powerful it is. Now, if somebody is a practiced, experienced meditator, they meditate a lot or do yoga or martial arts or prayer, These are things that allow somebody to learn the skill of how to reset your body's internal processes. And that's what you want to do for yourself. But you asked me the question, how do you help somebody else? That's how. You help them get into that zone. So we get them into that zone. I guess, Richard, one of the implications of of, of this is that we're not necessarily going to steer someone else's behavior the direction that we want them to. Right. It's not in conformity with their dreams. Right. (laughs) And it just ain't going to (laughs) happen. I used to have top executives ask me in the 90s, you know, well, wait a minute, if I start focusing on all those dreams and vision, what if the people's dream isn't to work in my company anymore? And my response was, then they don't now. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think part of it is you're being more trusting and it involves risk, but that's where people bring their juice. That's where they bring their talent. Now, I'm not, look, I'm not talking about rainbows, kittens, and, you know, unicorns here. One of the things, we just have a study that's coming out, I think, this month in an academic journal. Dan Goldman and I developed a new measure of personal sustainability about five years ago. And then Udi Andar and uh, John Osiri helped us to run a whole series of studies about it. And one of the things that we finally have data on, which I've been saying since the 70s, but I was saying it more clinically, but now we've got the data. It's really important for you to enter this positive emotional attractor zone, this renewal zone, in short bursts. Brief is better than long. Doing a number of 10 to 15-minute moments throughout the day is much better for you than to take a whole hour or an hour and a half. Why? Because you're interrupting all the negative stuff, you know, neural activation, hormones, etc. Quite literally, you're letting your body reset itself. So briefer moments helps. That's why when somebody started talking about a year, two years ago, about eliminating coffee breaks and eliminating lunch and letting people work three days and then be home for it would be deadly, Mm -hmm. absolutely deadly, because we need the coffee breaks, we need the lunch, we need the chats, we need the going out for drinks or coffee with colleagues. We need them to help our bodies and our minds reset themselves so we can perform. So More briefer moments during each day are key. And then here's the thing we also just proved is that the variety of things you do to get yourself into that zone also is highly predictive of more engagement, 
more sense of well-being, more career satisfaction, more empathy, less tension and distress, you know, all the, the good stuff and less of the bad stuff. And it works the same way when you help somebody else do it. Okay. I love it. Well, so let's hear, we've got five key components to an intentional change theory model. And we've we've gotten some of the goods already, but could you maybe just walk us through uh, briefly that process from beginning to end? I've been studying since 1967 how people change. And although I have been studying it, not just for individuals in dyads, pairs, couples, but also teams, organizations, communities, and countries, let me focus right now on individuals and pairs, dyadic interaction. First of all, sustained desired change is almost never continuous. It happens in fits and starts. I mean, if you tried to stop smoking, you don't just stop cold. Few people do and stay off it. You know, some days you don't smoke anything and some days you smoke two cigarettes. If you're trying to lose weight, you don't lose a pound a day. Some days you lose two pounds, some days you gain a pound. So it's discontinuous and it's nonlinear. And if we accept that, we're a little more patient with ourselves and other people. And this becomes important because if you feel tense about it, you're sending out all this stuff. People are yeah. picking it up in their brains and it's making them crazy. You know, this reminds me, BJ Fogg says, uh, people change better by feeling good, not by feeling bad. And it, it, res it rings true. Yeah. Yep. That's right. We have the data to prove that now. So with that notion, what I started discovering decades ago, and as I told you, it surprised me 20, 25 years ago when we really zeroed in on it, is that the real motivator of this is the dream, is the personal vision or sense of purpose, or sometimes people call it their calling. If you have that, you're eligible for the second discovery, which is how do you come across to others? And that's where if you don't have part of the dream, it turns out you're not open enough to notice. Mm -hmm. So there's like a 5% chance you'll actually change in some sustained way. But if you are open to it, you start to pick up and you start to identify things that you do that are strengths and things that you do that are weaknesses. You're doing it like if the end result of the first discovery is a personal vision, the end result of the second is a personal balance sheet. Then you decide. How do I get closer to my dream using my strengths and maybe work on a weakness? Nothing more, just one. That's where you identify an agenda or plan. This is where the goals come in as helpful. Because at this stage, you're making choices as to how you'll spend your time, and you're going to explore something. But it has to be joyful. If you do it because you should, it's exhausting and you'll atrophy. Then you go into a thing where you experiment with some new thoughts or feelings or behavior. And then pick the ones that work and practice it. And all of that happens in the context of trusting, caring relationships. And if any of those ingredients aren't there, your process stops short. The majority, this is really sad, but when I and others have done a lot of research on how much do people change in their abilities, their emotional, social, and cognitive intelligence after four years of college. And when we were doing these studies for various federal agencies in the 70s and 80s, we found that on the whole, people statistically significantly changed on one, which means you could babysit for four years and you might learn more than going to college. Hmm. Now, not every college has such bad results and not every person has them because a lot of it has to do with intentionality. Yeah. But then we started to realize that certain programs, certain schools taught you in a way that upped that a lot. And 
those desired outcomes were powerful. But I remember reading a study in the 90s in an MBA program, 28-year-olds, and the question was, how long did they remember what they had learned, in quotes, put on the final exam in their required intro accounting course? Six and a half weeks. All right. That was the half-life of knowledge. Now, there are things we can do that help us retain our learning. And that's why I talk about the sustainability a lot. And part of it is this idea of helping people go into this positive, more open state on a regular basis. It's why when people think they're going to do a lot and maybe even learn a lot by really knuckling down and working 80-hour weeks, what they're doing on the whole is inelastic damage. And they literally compromise their innovation and ability to see things in the environment for the sake of getting a task done. Most of us have to balance those things. And that's a lot of this is around the issue of balance, of being able to go back and forth with a lot of these different things. Well, Richard, I'm kind of curious what approaches to learning delivered the goods. Apparently, they were pretty rare. (laughs) Okay. It turns out that one issue is where you somehow want to learn it. All right. <laughs> okay. So, and you know, some people would say, well, I don't know what I don't know. Of course. But the question is, why are you taking it? And, and if you go back to any of your own courses, Pete, that you took in high school or college or graduate school, when you had to take Spanish, you might've taken two semesters, you might've taken four. And do you still remember any Spanish? Probably not. But If you did a semester in a Spanish country, Spanish-speaking country, if you started spending time going to South America regularly, like every few months, you actually might decide you want to learn Spanish and you might hold on to it. So a lot of it has to do with desire. Then the issue is, how does the learning fit into your whole life experience? There's so much that we can just memorize, but Cognitive psychology has proven that we hold things in our mind when we attach them to a context or a structure. And the question is, what's that structure? Well, when you involve people pedagogically in terms of the learning methods in more projects, teamwork, field work, people hang on to stuff. I mean, in medical school, they used to have people go through courses for several years before they saw a patient. Then somebody started noticing that if they started working with patients, obviously they're not going to just prescribe them drugs or do anything that they don't understand. But if they started seeing human beings in the first month, they hung on to things, they increased their learning durability or sustainability a lot Mm -hmm. because it's an emotional experience. So we're holistic beings. And if you learn something just with your head, it's going to have a a shorter half-life. If you learn it just with your feelings, it's going to have a shorter half-life. You need both. And so learning things with others. I was just on a call trying to help a group in Buenos Aires that has hundreds of thousands of 18 to 23-year-olds learn skills and how to get jobs. These are mostly unemployed people. And one of the things we talked about was If they don't learn to develop peer coaching relationships, relationships where they help each other, they have a lot of recidivism. All right. Thank you. Well, 
Anything else you want to make sure to mention before we hear about a few of your favorite things? <laughs> These are a few of my favorite things, but anyway. <laughs> okay. No, that's over. All right. How about a favorite quote? Maya Angelou. I have observed that in the future, they will not remember what you did. They will not remember what you said, but they will remember how you made them feel. And how about a favorite book? Kind of splits into different genres. One of the books that absolutely blew me away early in my studying of about psychology was uh, Eric Erickson's you know, Young Man Luther, and then later he wrote Gandhi's Truth about their kind of psychoanalytic history. And then there was Dave McClellan's uh, The Achieving Society and Power of the Inner Experience, because he, he took things from different things, from social psychology and experiments to anthropology to sociology and, and even history and blended it all together to come up with insights about how humans are motivated. Those, to me, are just absolutely, you know, phenomenal books. Now, on the fiction side, you know, I love some of the classics, Crime and Punishment and The Great Gatsby. But these days, if I want to relax, there's nothing like a Grisham book. <laughs> okay. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? Listening. Listening. All right. Which means asking people questions. Now, my wife would say I don't do that as much as I should. <laughs> <laughs> And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you frequently. I would say even today, some a couple faculty at different universities around the world who I was on meetings with uh, were quoting back some of the stuff that I used to say and still say about the fact that the most powerful thing we can do is to help people liberate their energy, their sense of freedom. because. When we do that, when we help people open up, there is no limit to what people can do in helping others, in creating new products and ideas, in solving some of these seemingly intractable social problems that we have. Okay. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? Well, let's see. We have a set of books that are more practitioner-oriented, so i.e. normal people can read them and enjoy them. The recent one is Helping People Change with uh, professors uh, Melvin Smith and Ellen Van Osten, Harvard Business Review Press did it. Uh, an earlier one was Primal Leadership with Dan Goldman and then Resonant Leadership. So those are a couple books. Then, and there are some Harvard Business Review articles that went along with each of the books. Then there are several MOOCs, massive open online courses I've done on Coursera. One I did on Inspiring Leadership Through Emotional Intelligence has Two weeks ago, I checked, I think a million, 250,000 people have taken this course from over 215 countries. And then, you know, there are all sorts of programs, whether it's listening to podcasts and people interviewing me or actually coming to Case Western Reserve, where I'm, that's my main job, my full-time job, and coming into some of our programs, like our master's and positive organization development. That's All of these were done as residencies even before COVID. So people would fly in once every few months. And the rest is online. The executive MBA, we have an executive doctorate program that's great for people who have a master's and want to do something more. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Focus on others. Your job isn't to manage a strategic plan or to manage money or to create a product. If you're in a leadership or management role, your job is to inspire others who will inspire others, 
who will inspire others, who will actually do the work. All right, Richard, this has been a treat. Thank you, and I, I wish you lots of luck in all your dreams. Thanks, Pete. Well, I love so much that key distinction Richard shared that associated with dreaming versus a goal. And when you dream, you open up, you imagine possibilities, you're ready to accept new ideas. And then when you've got a goal, you're focused, you're narrowed in. And boy, that makes all the difference in the world in terms of I've felt it. I know what that's like in my body. And I encourage you to think about times when you've just been open and dreaming versus maniacally focused on the goal and how that's different and what you'll hear. And if you're focused on the goal mode, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I'm going to keep doing the thing that I've been doing. And that's how it was going to be, as opposed to hmm, what could be possible? What could I create? How could I make this dream come to pass? Oh, here's a cool idea. And I'd love to receive some more cool ideas. Very handy. Very handy. So good stuff from Richard. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP641. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.